So here we go. We human beings excel at making plans. We're really good at it. Uh, we can organize our behaviors towards a goal that we keep in mind, and we can sustain those goals over a significant period of time. And when obstacles or hindrances come up, we can, using the power of the dor dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, we can uh, amazingly adapt with a kind of flexibility that very that frankly no other species has the it's the latest part of the brain to develop the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex what is that that's the dlp if you'll know when i say something like dlpf associate assume there's this realm this region of the brain in the frontal lobe roughly towards your outer temples and you've got a left and a right dorsolateral as you have a left and a right of everything in your brain your left is doing and solving problems sequentially through thought and it's doing it slowly your right dorsolateral is actually doing processing very very fast using what's called heuristics which are very simple yes no procedures that your brain can do at an alarmingly fast rate in fact to beat Gary Kasparov, the chess master, IBM's Deep Blue had to develop a computer that could perform 200 billion calculations every second. So think about that. You've got a brain that if you really put yourself to a task or to a discipline, it would require supercomputers that processed at 200 billion calculations a second to probably make the same as, uh, smart choices that you would make. You are fucking smart. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Unless if you're doing something really embarrassing, then you might want to consider otherwise. Along with it, it generally tends to involve other regions of the brain. Uh, it tends to enlist as support the orbital frontal, which is the part of your brain that considers social objections, and it's essentially where your superego, your inner mom, your the part of you that worries about how you will be seen, whether you will maintain your social status, uh, on the left side, it worries about social status. On the right side, the orbital frontal worries about attachment patterns. And if you know about attachment patterns, you'll know how important that is. Uh, the orbital frontal is involved as well. And then, of course, there's narrative speech because you keep track of your plans and your goals and what you're working towards in inner chatter, and that's the left temporal parietal. So you got a lot of different regions. You don't have to memorize that. I'm kind of weird that I have been able to memorize any of this shit. So um, the dorsal lateral, lateral is very, very powerful. On the left, again, working through problems slowly, very detailed slogging process that many of us use when we face setbacks. Um, the left tends to get into log jams and stalemates, though, but it never believes ever that it can't figure something out. The left hemisphere is wildly over-optimistic, in the words of the great esteemed neuropsychologist Ian McGilchrist. So you, when you're working on something using thinking, you are using a lobe of the brain that is very unlikely to ever admit that a task or a goal or a plan won't work you are most likely to try to stick with it and figure it out, even though all of your friends are saying, no! <laughs> Dopamine and the left hemisphere are the most feel-good, optimistic, you know, let's go ahead. The right hemisphere, which is, speaks to us largely through the body, doesn't really use that much language, but it tends to work much faster. It's what Daniel Kahneman calls the fast circuits. It can do all those amazing fast uh, calculations, and it's running everything essentially very quickly 
through somatic markers in your body and is seeing how things feel as you run them through in your mind. And it can actually do parallel processing. So it can do this on a level that's actually astonishing. So when somebody asks you, would you like a grilled cheese or the tempeh salad? I don't know what they would offer you. But, uh, <laughs> but essentially... Believe it or not, while you're thinking, oh, the last time I had a grilled cheese, but maybe I should think about my weight. But meanwhile, your right hemisphere is flashing through millions upon millions of calculations where it runs through every single time in the past you had a grilled cheese versus a tempeh, and it runs through them, and it, it processes them through somatic markers, and then those go back up through the insula, and believe it or not, that's how you make a lot of your decisions. When people have right hemispheric strokes, they stop being able to make important decisions. Their left hemisphere just leaves them very optimistic, very happy, so plans are put hard to put aside when we're trying to think them through. The more we learn to incorporate the body, feelings, the easier we are to begin to feel if we know how to read our uh, right hemispheres, which speak to us again somatically. If your stomach gets really tight when you think about uh, trying to make that career change work next week and every sign is telling you not to do it and you just simply visualize what it would take and you listen to your body, most likely you'll get a far more logical, accurate answer than if you try to logically write down pros and cons. Because guess what? Those pros and cons lists do not fucking work. <laughs> Read Antonio Damasio. They, he has shown that when you try to logically, through the left hemisphere, write pros and cons and figure things out just by analyzing them, you're not getting enough somatic information. You're not getting right hemispheric experience. And part of the right hemisphere is to tell you, hey, don't do that. It's better if we just stay with our friends and not move to Peru next week. <laughs> It's very difficult to put aside, not just because the left hemisphere is over-optimistic, but because dopamine is activated by the left hemisphere. Dopamine, if you don't know it, it's the reward neurotransmitter. It's the thing that makes the thrill of sme smelling pizza or shopping, meeting a new partner, and having sex the first time, and the record collector's thrill uh, when they first go into Amoeba Music in San Francisco. Has anybody ever done that? So when you're in a big record store and you're a record nerd, you start to feel this high of excitement and it makes you want to buy something and it won't let you leave unless you purchase something, even though you don't really need anything. It's the part of the, the neurotransmitter that is like the left hemisphere, ever optimistic, it's very sticky. It doesn't like to let go. It's the reason why us alcoholics and addicts find it so difficult to get out of our terrible patterns of, instead of connecting securely with other people, chasing good feelings uh, through drugs and alcohol. Now, the problem with dopamine is that the feel-good feelings also last for about a... <coughs> half an hour, then you need more cocaine or heroin or whatever it is. Well, heroin is a, a, an opiate, but you get the idea. Dopamine will chase after the thrill and won't let go. And it will keep you chasing it. The thing that you believe will give you novelty and a new experience and something that gives you approval from people, not secure connection. The left hemisphere wants approval, recognition, renown. The right hemisphere wants emotional connection that is disclosing and is not based on words, but is actually based on uh, intimate facial expressions and so forth. Capitalism <laughs> rewards, this will come as a shock to you, self-reliance. In fact, capitalism pushes us not to connect securely, not to reveal our emotions, not to share authentically with other people. Capitalism essentially just pushes us to self-reliance, which means we chase after goodies, 
we chase after fin the myth of financial security, and we chase after renown, the, what the Buddha called the uh, worldly winds. We chase after money, fame, recognition, and uh, approval from close people. None of those will give you any lasting feeling of fulfillment. Have you ever posted something that got a lot of likes and felt really great about it for more than a day? If you have, we need to look into that. <laughs> so, we don't draw plans easily because the dopamine reward system in tandem with the left hemisphere fixates. And if that wasn't enough, when obstacles come up, you'd think it would be red flags, which we call, but how many times in life have we overlooked red flags? You don't have to answer me. Red flags also trigger adrenaline. And adrenaline, guess what, is a neurotransmitter that pushes you to overcome against all odds. Driven by consuming things that make the dopamine flow, the less easy it will be to let go of plans. And the more we rely on thinking and logic rather than feeling and sharing with close friends to make important decisions, the more likely we will to be to pursue tasks that are insurmountable and will lead nowhere good. The core of the Buddha's awakening is that, guess what, change is the law. Unforeseeable, unwelcome change is the law of life. It's called a Nietzsche. And from that, dukkha stems, which is suffering, because we tend to, as the, dude in, the Buddha, the Duda, the, the dude, <laughs> picture Jeff Bridges. As the dude said, we tend to be inflexible and stick to our guns and don't know when to let go and don't know when to, as the topic of this talk is called, go with the flow, which means accept that a certain change, a certain ambition, a certain relationship, a certain endeavor is not right now in the cards and be willing to put it aside and connect securely and wait until another time is available to essentially make the plan. The more we feel into the body, hold, visualize, we'll incorporate the right hemisphere. The Buddha used a famous analogy called the rafts and it's part of the water snake suit, and none of this you have to know either, but in it he said, even the most trustworthy tool, even something that has brought you through your life and it's been reliable and has been something that has given you security and has worked countless times in the past, you have to be willing to put it down. And the raft analogy essentially is, he said, if you were following down a path and you reached this uh, water that was insurmountable, would you, if you built a raft out of leaves and straw and twigs, in other words, you were incredibly resourceful, and you built this raft and you somehow made it across, would you then, he asked, drag that around with you everywhere you go, even though you didn't need a raft once you were back on solid land? And of course, the nuns and monks around him go, of course not. And then he says, well, as such is the case, everything that you rely upon, every spiritual tool, everything you believe, you should be willing when the signs are telling you you don't need it anymore to put it down or that it's not working to put it down and try something else. We all, there's also other Buddhist teachings like Didi and Atava Upadana, which talks about how our plans and beliefs are so damn sticky for us and how unlikely we are likely we are to put them aside and how the more we become affixed to our plans and opinions the more that we will suffer in life because again the law is change and when there's change but we stick to our fixed goals without being willing to at least consider other plans or get other advice from outside other uh, people who care about us rather than trying to figure it out ourselves. We're setting ourselves up. Before making plans and going too far down the path, do what Einstein did. Whenever he would get anywhere on a 
problem or a, I guess it would be something math and physicy and sciencey. Not my strings. But he said that he would actually stop and stop thinking about it and he would actually go and take a long walk on the beach and feel the sand and feel the wind and feel the bre him breathing. And uh, essentially he said he would check out of the left and engage his right hemisphere to do felt emotional processing. He would check in. It's only when you check in that you get input about how secure a new endeavor makes you feel and how attached to people who are important to you is involved in that plan. For instance, if you get a job offer and it sounds really great, really exciting company, but you have to work longer hours, you won't be home as much, but you get a lot of awards and recognitions and will make your resume look great, your left hemisphere will be all for it and will want to accept the job before you check in and feel where your right hemisphere says, you know what, L leaving my job with all those people who know me is scary and I don't feel that secure going into a new job and maybe we should talk with other people about this. This is the role of somatic markers, what Damasio said, feeling, integrating the right hemisphere into our decisions. So suppose you actually have made a plan and suppose, just for say, that you uh, are stuck, you're trying to make something work that is clearly not working and you finally uh, have gotten enough input from enough supportive friends telling you, please, put it aside, what do we do next? How do we become flexible? How do we repair? What's the next steps? Well, one is to restore the most reliable attachments that you have. Seek out the people that you can talk about your sadness, your frustration, your despair, that uh, moving suddenly to a different location or quitting your job for a new one that's suddenly not what it promised to be or the relationship or the book you wanted to write but you're still at page one. You talk about the feelings with your friends. That will help undo the left hemisphere which when it, you stop the crusade, your left hemisphere will drop the dopamine which feels great and it will start to trigger the release of cortisol which is largely motivated by the orbital frontal creating the fear of social shaming and rejection from others. You feel that because you didn't write the book, other people will laugh and judge you. But if you find and seek out your core friends and talk about your feelings, it won't matter because you'll fire up that wonderful serotonin that makes you feel connected and supported and so you'll be able to sustain and be able to rebound pretty quickly. If you do Activate your HPA axis, which means you feel anxious or panicky because something that you've so relied upon hasn't worked out. The key things are three. One, Pennebaker's research shows that if you write it out really slowly, write out your fears, write out all the embarrassments, just write it out, that integrates right and left hemisphere and it actually allows you to process the experience. Two, slow down. Do everything really slowly for a while. The slower you take actions, the less the left hemispheric shaming will take place. The left will be bombarded with obsessive thoughts. Slowing down has been shown when people walk slower, breathe slower, eat slower, um, that they actually tend to have less cortisol, which means you'll be less anxious and panicky. Finally, prioritize self-care which means treat yourself really well. Don't self-punish because something hasn't worked out. Do the exact opposite. Reward yourself for being courageous enough to let something go. Buy yourself something that is really healthy. Go to something that makes you feel real good, uh, yoga or get a massage or whatever. Do something that feels indulgent. And finally, I would say meditation on healthy reflections, which is what we're going to do, as well as uh, do some embodied uh, learning how to work the right hemisphere into making plans. Uh, reflections, which the Buddha taught, uh, 
the daily reflections practice of bringing to mind that which really makes you feel good about your life, that which you feel most proud of, those people that you feel are most reliable. That meditation not only will fire up again serotonin because it's so visual, but when you do that in the aftermath of doing that meditation enough, when you make new plans, you'll be able to make smart plans, plans that are left motivated by the contingent, conditional chasing after fame or money or uh, wild success, and it will integrate some of the more important things that you will look back on your life and feel proud of, which is how much love did you give yourself and others? How well did you connect? How uh, well did you treat yourself both physically and emotionally? Um, uh, who, what were your actions that were esteemable, that you feel good about, that uh, suggest uh, courage and confidence, all that. So, ta-da, I hope something in there was interesting. And now we are going to actually meditate. So let's start with three breaths just to start in sync with each other and feel connected. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift up them shoulders, or you don't have to, just do whatever you like. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders, let them fall like they weigh tons, and gently, if it feels good for you only, if it feels right, gently pull your shoulders back to open up your chest and keep your head nicely aligned with your shoulders and your shoulders nicely aligned with your pelvis. In other words, try not to slouch your head. And then let's take another full in-breath through the nose and really contract the belly. Hold it and then breathe out and soften. That's called toning your vagal vagus nerve. And then for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles of your face. Tight, tight, tight. Breathe out and relax. And that tones the more recent parts of the vagal vagus, which allows you to relax. So... It's good to start a meditation with an anchor, which is something that settles your mind, keeps it focused on a recurrent object that's continuously occurring without much effort on your behalf. And so that could be, one, listening to the sounds of the room, the sounds from the street, just allow your mind to hold all of the sounds, both the furthest and the nearest that are occurring. Trying to do this without adding any commentary or adding, in fact, anything to the experience. Just try to be with sounds. A second anchor is the breath, of course. So find the somatic expression of your breath, i.e., where do you feel it in your body most clearly? And always work with the breath internally, from the feelings, the sensations of the body expanding and contracting. Don't just vaguely know that you're breathing in or out. Feel it from the inside so you can find that belly 
often expanding on the in-breath and then collapsing on the out, or the chest the a, might expand on the in and then collapse on the out. Some people do like to feel the breath at the tip of the nose, and that's absolutely fine. And for many people, there won't be enough neural reward trying to stay with the breath. So an easy trick is to count your breaths. It engages parts of the mind that will want to be with it. So for a while, you just count one on the in, if you like, two on the out three on the in, four on the out, and then when you reach five on the in, just start counting back down, four on the out, and so forth. And if you lose track of what number you're on, no worries at all. There's no room in this practice for self-criticism, embarrassment, frustration, or impatience. Consider those not to be your friends. Your friends are forgiveness, compassion, kindness, acceptance. And so try to be in your meditation the best friend you could possibly imagine to yourself, the most understanding, kind therapist to your inner experience. You'd want a friend or a therapist to just be gentle, empathetic, accepting, and in no way adding any judgment about what you're trying in life or who you are. So third, you could just use the feelings of contact with the ground or the chair you're sitting upon or the cushion. And also you could bring in the lights flickering behind closed eyes. Closed eye visuals are fine, just try not to imagine yet things, but those flashing little flickering lights behind the eyelids are perfectly good sensations to work with. <clears throat> the longer your out-breath, the more you will produce a little GABA and relax yourself, the more you'll soothe. It's really a wonderful practice. No judgment, complete acceptance of yourself and your experience. Whatever you're experiencing right now, welcome it. And if it's strong enough to pull you away from the breath, just note it, welcome it. If it's a thought or memory or an image or a feeling that's very strong in the body, just, just say welcome, you're allowed, and then bring your awareness back. Don't try to push it away. Finally, some people do like to visualize, and the Buddha called this practice nimitta, which means just hold an image of a candle flickering in the light or dark, or visualize a red or yellow or blue or green circle, and just very slowly expand that circle until it takes up all of your visual awareness, and then See if you can merge with that color. So we'll st spend about 10 minutes just doing this.
So at this point, you can let your anchor recede into the background, whether it's contact sensations or sounds or the breath. Just allow it to still be there, of course, but don't keep it in the forefront of or the spotlight of your attention. Now bring to mind a plan that in either in the past or possibly even in the present that you've mulled over that requires some substantial series of steps. For instance, if moving, changing a job or a career. writing a book, becoming a painter, making a movie, something that you've thought about doing. And first, see if you can use the left to think through the steps that you would need to take. So try to think of something like, for example, taking a year-long trip around the world. Well, I would need to quit my job. I'd need to find financial support for such an endeavor. I'd have to find work that I could do remotely. I'd have to get a lot of visas and so forth. Just see if you can come up with a basic list of things you'd have to do to perform this or achieve this goal. And try to do it using a list, using words. (coughs) 
Now, wherever your list is at, just allow it to be. And I want you to start one by one with some of that item list visualizing the actual experience. So if the actual experience was asking someone for financial support or quitting your job and then finding a work that could be done remotely, visualize all that experience as an the most visual detail you can add, the better. And while you do that, hold the image and feel into your body, the stomach, the chest, the throat, the face, which is where emotions are expressed, and see if you can feel what your right hemisphere feels about each of these steps. So take them one by one. Start with the first step that you need to do to achieve your goal. Visualize it and as you hold the visual for 12 seconds again become aware of any tension in your belly, chest, throat or face or conversely be aware of pleasant feelings. Quitting my job feels great. Get the input from the faster circuits of your brain. They speak to you through your body. All right, so let's put that aside. Probably if you felt a lot of tightness, contraction, especially in the throat, it's worth noting that the plan requires far more emotional processing than 
you've uh, allotted or worked with. But if it just created a lot of physical ease, then chances are you feel very confident and your emotional circuits agree with you. So let's move on to the final practice. Just for a moment, bring to mind something that didn't work out recently. It doesn't have to be too big. A disappointment. Something just frustrating. Something that you wanted to happen. You worked towards, but didn't come to fruition. Anything that leaps to mind, don't overthink it. And then we're going to do a few tools to alleviate any lingering feelings of embarrassment or disappointment. Just allowing the disappointment or frustration or whatever needs to be felt be there, but visualize someone with whom you have an uncomplicated relationship that's safe. Someone whom you can turn to and ask not to give you advice and just share and they'd be willing to listen. See if you can visualize their face and take a minute if you like just for a moment put your hand to your heart if you want or not and just beneath audible but whisper thank you and state their name thank you and just hold that feeling If you'd like, you can do that for another person or for a figure that's inspired you. And then again, hold them in your mind's eye. Visualize them with an understanding, caring expression, if you like. And just whisper, thank you. And if you like, you can keep your hand to your heart or let your hand gently come down. And then visualize an action that you feel very proud of. Something that you did not seeking fame or esteem, but you did simply out of virtue, out of caring, out of sacrifice something that you haven't given yourself enough credit for. Just try to find a visual and hold that visual. And then slowly bring or replace that image with your own, either the way you look today in your mind or some previous time and just thank yourself thank you Finally, visualize a skill that you've developed, that you've taken on and learned, something that you feel proud of, dancing, yoga, writing, drawing, anything that you feel proud of, your art, your photography, your music, 
and then visualize someone who supported you. And for the third time, just whisper, thank you. As you continue in life making plans, see if you can remember some of these reflections. The person that you are closest to, no matter what you plan, keep that person as available as you can. Visualize the action that made you feel virtuous and remind yourself, no matter what you're planning, It's the actions that make you feel the most connected with others that bring up the most feelings of fulfillment. And also, finally, the last consideration of the skills you've picked up is remember that any endeavor requires support. So whenever you're ready, when you hear the sound of the bell, very slowly open your eyes and look at the ground before you and just take in the lights and the color and see if you can maintain your body awareness and see if you can integrate sight with feeling. If you do that, you'll have a well-balanced bilateral mind.